0: What does it mean to be a social worker for you?
1: I think that's a great question. I've been thinking about that a lot. I think it has evolved definitely through my education and through my career. I didn't plan to end up in academia, so we can talk about that a little bit more later. You know, as a younger social worker, I remember just being really, and this goes back to like high school, even like my dad was a a commissioner at DHS. And so I spent a lot of time sort of like around social workers and around people doing the things that I ended up doing. And so I always knew I sort of wanted to end up in the field. And I always knew that I wanted to, and I think this is common, right? We even have a lot of students that say this, I want to help children. I want to help children, right? You don't really, or they say, you know, I want to work with children, but you don't really realize that you'll be working for children and for families and for lots of other systems. So I didn't get that, obviously, at that time. I just thought, like, I just want to help the babies. But since that time, you know, like, I've done a lot of work with children, obviously. But now I find myself being, like, much more militant, which I never saw coming, right? Like, I'm ready to just, like, burn everything down, which I think is, like, when I think about the roots of social work, like, I, I think sure. that, that is, that's part of it. That's part of our profession. But I didn't get that and so I think pretty recently. I say like maybe the past five years where I just see so much pain and so much suffering and so many things in this world that are just, that need to be fixed. And I think part of how we fix it is just with really radical solutions. And I think that I used to be maybe a little more collaborative than I'm feeling now. Right now I'm like, all right, we need some like amazing radical leaders to sort of take control of what's happening and fix all the stuff that's happening. So that's what it means to me now, you know, and I, and I have to balance that out with teaching, obviously, because not every student is there. So I find myself trying to find ways to just plant those seeds to hope that I can sort of like cultivate that like spirit of like passion and advocacy and radicalism in the students.
0: What changed for you like five, six years ago from going from, you know, being more like I think that I hear you say is like kind of like service minded, collaborative to like really embracing the roots of social justice? Was there a pivotal moment or were there like a series of moments that created this want for change?
1: I don't think there's any one thing. I think definitely my just experience growing through academia, I think that's one of the biggest things. And I think people romanticize teaching, right? Like everybody sort of looked at being a professor as sort of like the the farthest you can go in social work or, or in some other disciplines too. And I never thought of it that way. And the more, I think I sort of saw like more responsibility with that. Never a point where like, oh, I'm at the top of my career. I can sort of coast. I looked at it as like, I'm at this point in my career where I have a lot of privilege. And so, like, what can I do with this privilege? And I, and I really was, fo- I'm really focused on now, like, figuring out how I can use my position to really help a lot of folks in a lot of different ways. So I think that's one of the bigger things for me.
0: Talk to us about your trajectory, beginning to now. What has it been like? What was your journey in social work like?
1: Yeah. So, like I said, I started out in foster care. Um, I did. I went to school, a university in Maryland, Baltimore County, for undergrad, and I did what was like the equivalent of CWEB or CWell, which is like the program in Philadelphia where you work with your university and, and DHS. But I did the equivalent of that in Baltimore County or Maryland. So I was in had internships that are, focus, that are focused on child welfare, at the child welfare agency in the county. Then I graduated and immediately my first job was right out of school. I did advanced standing MSW at Temple. So I was working in foster care and had my internships in child welfare. And I did that for a while. And then I sort of did other jobs in child welfare. I worked at DHS for a while where I did, I was in intake. And then I was transitioned to being a supervisor in family center, like ongoing services. I did lots of jobs in child welfare. I did parenting programs. They don't have SCO anymore, but I was a director for a SCO program. That's like old school child welfare. And then I transitioned a little bit into community mental health doing like mobile therapy, behavior specialists. I have a, I have two daughters, one who's eight and one who's 13. And when my 13-year-old was a baby, she was diagnosed with a genetic disorder, a rare genetic disorder called Williams syndrome, which is like one in 20,000 births, just a ran, random chromosomal abnormality. And so I was introduced into the world of early intervention, and working with children with autism spectrum disorders and developmental delays. So my daughter was getting early intervention services through the city and the agency that was assigned to her wanted to hire a social worker. They didn't have one. So they hired me as their first social worker with the agency. And so that was a really great opportunity to sort of like learn more about developmental delays, you know, autism spectrum, and also really advocate for for parents who had other children that were in early intervention. I really enjoyed, which was new to me, You know, working with parents who had children with new diagnosis and sort of helping them navigate like what I was doing with my daughter. So that was a really great opportunity for me too. And then actually because of that, because her name is Amina, because Amina had so many medical needs her first year, I was so worried that I would not be able to hold a regular job, like a nine to five years work job. So I'm like, well, how am I going to do this with a baby who has special needs? And I always say, you know, I would worked with children for, you know, a bunch of years at that point, but it never entered my mind that I would end up with a child with special needs, with such significant special needs, right? Like children with Williams syndrome have a lot of medical needs. They have a lot of like cognitive delays sometimes, um, learning disabilities. And so I had really no idea what Amina's sort of prognosis would be like as she grew older. Luckily, she's doing great now, but I didn't know at the time. So I thought, what is going to allow me the maximum flexibility with my schedule and with employment? And so I thought, I'll go back to school for a doctorate. That'll give me at least some more options as far as what I can do for work. And maybe I'll be able to have the flexibility in my schedule that I'll need to be a parent of a special needs kid. So I went back to school for my doctorate, went to Penn for the DSW program. It was, a, it was a great. It was a really good experience. Met a lot of good people there. And then when I came out, I still really didn't have any attendance on teaching. I really enjoyed being a therapist. So I've been working as a clinician in a bunch of different agencies at that time. I trained in TFCBT. And also in CPP, Child Parent Psychotherapy. And I was really enjoying, you know, being in the community, working with children and families. I still was doing some consulting with early intervention. And that's really where my heart is, you know, with sort of being with families and being with kids and doing therapy. But then just randomly how I got into teaching is such a funny story. So I, one of my friends had applied for a position at Westchester and had me listed as a reference. And this is right around the time when they were opening up the Philadelphia campus at Westchester. So someone called to check his references and they said, I see that you have a doctorate. We're opening up this Philly campus. Are you interested in coming in and talk to us about maybe teaching? And I was like, nah, not really. I really love my job in it there. And they're like, no, you should come in. You should. It was Dr. Buck, right? So she's like, you should come in. she come in and talk to us, see what our program is like, take a look around, see if you're interested. And I was like, no, you know, I'm good. She's like, just come in. Send me your resume and just come in. I'm like, all right. So I sent her the CV, ended up coming in. had a great tour, had a great interview. And I was offered a class to teach. I was offered 554, which is like the HBSD lifespan development class. And just randomly that same semester, my doctoral program had sent out a a call because they needed an instructor for a course that semester too. So I was like, just respond to that. Like, hey, I'm available if you, you know, if you still need uh, coverage for that class. So just randomly out of the blue, I found myself teaching two classes, being adjunct at two different places in the same semester. And I immediately fell in love with teaching. And at that point, I still didn't think, I was going to transition full time, but I just recognized like, wow, here's another way that I can touch a lot of people, right? Like I was, I'd always been really focused on working one-on-one with families and clients. And I'm like, wow, you know, doing the math in my head, like, wow, I got, you know, 20 students every semester and they're working with 20 clients or, you know, like, wow, this could be a really great way to start dropping those seeds all over. And so I taught the classes, they went, they went pretty well, you know, just went back to my therapy job, was doing really, you know, really interested in that doing doing fine. And then Dr. Buck sent me an email again. She said, "Hey, you did really well your your semester teaching here. We have some tenure track jobs that are available coming up soon. Do you want to apply to them?" And I'm like, uh, "No, you know, I like my job. You know, I'm happy to do adjunct again, but you know, I'm good." So then every now and then she'd sit, send me another email and say, "Hey, we saw those jobs over. Do you want to send your stuff?" No, like, nah. And then randomly, the company that I was working for laid off everyone in the department. Just as you know, some of these community agencies do. Sometimes they lose funding, they lose you know, focus, they change, whatever. So there was some turnover of management and administration. I think a company had come in and bought part of the company. I don't know, something happened. And so then I found myself to be without a job in a few months. And so then I emailed her. I'm like, hey, do you still have those jobs available? Let me apply, right? And so in retrospect, seeing how the process now is for hiring than I've had the experience of being on several search committees. I honestly, I mean, it was some divine intervention that I got hired. I mean, I just, and I find this a lot, which we can talk about too, is that people, are not groomed for academia, which happens to be a lot of people of color, just have no idea what the interview process is like. And they go in, it's so green and it's so intense. And I really didn't have any mentorship at all. So that's really one of my goals now too, is to start really providing that mentorship and grooming women and people of color in general who want to be in academia. I think I'm really passionate about that, but we can talk a little bit about that later. But that's sort of how I ended up there. So I got the job and I've been sort of just trying to find my way ever since then. How do you
0: navigate being, you know, like a practitioner
1: and then being like an academic? Because I definitely
0: remember in graduate school as As a a a student and then also just, yeah, like as a student, like really grappling with like, okay, I know this professor's content area is really strong, but then this person's practicing and like people who practice in the field really have like a passion for I hear it in your voice I see it in what you do how do you negotiate the balance
1: I just I made a commitment to myself really early on that that was non-negotiable for me that I always felt strongly that the best professors that I had were professors who were still in the field in some some way not the ones who talked about what they did in the field 30 years ago. No shade to those, because I know we need we need the OGs too. Yes. <laughs> but you know what I mean? But I just felt like, for me, that's what made the difference for me as a student. And so a lot of what I, you know, like I said, I wasn't groomed on like, teaching pedagogy that's just I didn't come up like that I didn't go to a traditional PhD program I went to a very clinically fo- focused program it's, it's just really different than what you learn in a more like a more research based program where you're groomed for research and teaching and so what works for me is what interests me right and so that's how I plan my lessons that's how I plan sort of like what classes I want to teach and how I teach that's how I approach teaching like what worked well for me as I was a student. And that was one of the things that really meant a lot to me is having people who understood what it was like to be in the field. And so I made a commitment to, to myself that I was going to go into some way, be still be connected to the community and to clinical work, even if I was going to teach full time. So let's, let's talk about here and now,
0: you know, you're doing the amazing work at Westchester and I'm always moved by some of your social media updates about like how people, when they see that you're the professor,
1: oh yeah,
0: it's yeah. like really moving and it's a powerful moment of like use of self. It's a powerful moment of like showing up. It's a powerful moment of visibility. It's, about, it's a powerful moment of like arrival. Yeah. so many ways. And so I want to sort of explore that with you like a little bit about what's going on for you in the here and now passion projects. Mm -hmm. What's it like to be a professor full-time and balancing all this work out and how you negotiate all of it?
1: It's hard. I mean, I don't, no one figures it out. Like, you know, it's just day to day. You're just like, all right, let's get through this week. You know, let's see what happens. But I do find that, you know, how I approach, and and this has come with time, you know, I would be lying if I said, said that I didn't suffer from imposter syndrome. Like I'm, I'm, I just always, not always, but like, yeah, well, maybe always, you know, I'm like, do I deserve to be here? Am I worthy of this? You know, should people trust what I'm saying? You know, is this, is this for real? But I just treat, you know, my classroom, I can't separate who I am from what I'm doing. Right. So my classroom is a, Black woman cultural space. That's just how I teach and that's who I am and that's how I approach it. And so I think that my students who are Black women see that and appreciate that. And they can come into the classroom and be themselves, you know, they don't have to change. They can talk about the things that they are struggling with, which sometimes are the things that I'm struggling with, or maybe some of the things that I can advise on. And I think that's been a really positive experience for me and for a lot of the students, particularly at the campus where we teach, we you know there are a lot of sort of like black women or people of color there. And so I think that's been really It's been really powerful for me to get some of the feedback that I've gotten. And I think that I didn't realize this in the beginning, right? Like, because I said I was kind of struggling with like, is this a mistake? Is somebody going to be like, oh, we didn't really want you as a teacher here, you know? Okay, now that I'm here, you know, five years in, I'm like, all right, I can do this. I've been doing this. So some of the feedback that I've gotten, particularly over the past years, I just really see how much of an impact. It matters to have someone look like you. Like the students tell me, like I, you know, lots of students have said, I've never had a Black teacher. And they're in graduate school. They've never had a black teacher. They've never had a black woman teacher. I mean, that is really tragic, you know, in some ways. And so, whereas I'm sad that I had to be the first one, you know, and they're in a graduate program, I'm happy that I can be someone that they can trust and that they can look to and that they can, you know, come to. And I I find a lot of students keep in touch with me. A lot of students after they graduate and they, you know, they ask me about job advice and they ask me about doctoral programs and I just really love that I can have that connection with students I really do
0: and of course I hear amazing things because a lot of students come through and they talk about the awesomeness that you're doing and I'm curious about Westchester sort of now that you have this you have the platform and this ability to not only be seen but also as you're saying to plant seeds what are the projects that you're working on
1: now that you're here so I have, you know, my con- sort of consulting company, Akbar and Associates, and that really came from the need that I saw for making these connections with students. And so because i would get so inundated with like requests for mentorship or recommendations or advice on career planning or you know higher education i was like what is a way that i can sort of streamline this and also connect people to some of the other like amazing social workers that i know that are in the field and doing great work a lot of what I try to do is connect some students or people that I've supervised or people that just have interests with other people in the community and make those connections so that people can sort of like, say like, hey, I have this idea. I want to go into private practice. Do you know anyone? Like, yeah, let me connect you with this person. Like, hey, I'm in medical social work. Not really sure how to get into that. Let me connect you with this person. We also have like a, a couple of workshops that we're working on, which is really like pathways to higher education. So I get lots of students that are interested in either adjuncting, or going into teaching full-time or going back to school for an advanced degree, PhD, DSW, PsyD, things like that. And so, like I said, I see from being on the search committees for the past few years, I see how... A lot of people just are not prepared for what that entails. So we've been trying to do workshops on how to set up your CV, how to do an academic interview, what kinds of things you need to do to set yourself up to be competitive, like joining research projects, writing, you know doing service work, presenting, things like that. That's been great. I have two interns right now and they've been working really hard. It's my second year with interns, so that's been great. And we're you know we're it's small. And it takes some time to get this stuff rolling out, but it's been going really well. Another thing that I'm working on, which I'm really excited about, which I've been wanting to tell you about too, is that, so I have another friend, her name is um, Elizabeth Pearson, and she works in creative writing at Temple University. But she had the idea to do a parent group or a group for parents or people who are parenting or want to parent for parents who want to raise food neutral and body positive children. And so we've been trying to work to start to put together that group. We have a space that we're working on and a a bunch of people that are interested. So my intern's been working to put that together too, which I'm really excited about. I think that's going to be awesome.
0: Say more about this project. It sounds so exciting. Plus I'm very interested and eager to hear more.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So we, you know, I just, we're trying to find a way to you know, a, a lot of people that are sort of in this, I guess, you know, health at every size and intuitive eating and body body positivity movement that I've been become familiar with, like over the past few years, or just out of uh, like personal connections that I have. We've been talking about like what it was like for us growing up. Some of them as fat kids, some of them who've grown into larger bodies, you know, as adults, and trying to sort of some of them recovering from eating disorders, and like how do we sort of help our children? start at a place where we could have started at 20 25 35 years ago and so Liz came up with this idea like hey why don't we do something to, you know for our kids to talk to talk to parents about how to talk to their children about coming up with this world that it's constantly critical of weight and size and obsessed with beauty. Like we need to be proactive about it and not let, and not reactive, right? Like not try to fix it after our kids are already really struggling from hearing things at school or seeing what they see in the media or whatever, but try to be proactive and plant those seeds early so that they can be the ones speaking out saying, hey, my body is fine and great. And I'm not, you know, going to be so easily influenced by all these messages that we're constantly bombarded with. So I'm just so excited about that, and so excited that I, there are other people that are excited about that. So Liz and I went to a a workshop at Velvet Lily a couple of weeks ago, and it was like I think it was called like Big Body Loving, and it was like about basically about relationships and sex um, with people with larger bodies. And Shanali was there, who is like one of the like my. Like just idols. I told her, I'm like, I'm obsessed with you. And so we were talking about this group and she came up to us later and was like, hey, I'm really interested in your group. And I have a bunch of people that were, that are, that parents that I think will really be interested. And I was like, totally fangirling. Like, oh my God, this is so awesome. But a couple of people there, they run a, a studio for, they do like boudoir shoots for people with larger bodies. And so they're going to let us use their space for free to have the group. And so we're just looking for people to get in, get in on it and share the group. by my intern, compiling some resources for us, setting up a schedule, trying to figure out what dates and times will be good so we can get it moving.
0: Shout out to Sonali, another social yeah. worker out there, Radical Therapy Center. And I think there's an Instagram, is it, my it. Therapist?
1: Yeah. yeah. Therapist. So yeah. shout
0: out to Sonali and also shout out to all the folks at Health at Every Size and the Body Positivity Community. This sounds like a really exciting project and I hope that you can let us know when it gets launched because we will totally promote it.
1: Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I'm really excited about that. it's going to be awesome.
0: What have been some of the challenges in this new work, this new sort of trajectory that you've been on in the past five years, both as a person, also as a social worker, also all parts of you?
1: Well, um, I think one of the things I struggle with a lot, particularly in academia, is not having a mentor to sort of help me. And I think that would have been really... I think that's one of the things that makes me so passionate about also about like helping other people who sort of want to get here. Because sometimes like I just don't know. I, I just I'm really comfortable with the social work part of it. But like navigating those academia policies and politics, I just had no idea about. And I still don't, you know. So even, you know, I'm going up for tenure right now trying to prepare for that. And I'm lucky that in, my, in our department, I think people are really generally really supportive. I was going into everything blind. Like I had no idea sort of like what the tenure process was like or what I needed to do. And so I was really sort of like finding out everything on my own and just sort of figuring it out. So I definitely think that having a mentor would have helped me. I definitely think that, you know, working as a, one of the few Black women professors at a predominantly white institution can be really challenging, you know, particularly when I go to main campus, I can go to meetings. I can be the only Black person in a room, you know, and I just... I'm always shocked by that, no matter what happens. I mean, you know, no, no matter how often it happens, I'm just like, how, how can this be? You know, I was on the new faculty orientation committee for a few years. And so I'd get to see the whole full, like incoming class of new professors. And out of 60 professors of all the pl- disciplines, there'd only be a couple Uh, People of color, you know, so I always was like, wow, this is, is this what higher education is? And like, how can we get this to be more diverse? Because there's definitely a need for it. And so that's that's been hard for me. I think that's been sort of like a rude awakening that, particularly in a field like social work and in child welfare, there are so many people of color. There's so many black women, but the higher up you go, as you see in a lot of social work agencies as well, they tend to get more white and more male. And I'm just like, what is happening? Even in our you know field and even in our teaching. And so that's something that I'm really passionate about changing. Like we need to we need to break that down and we need to get all kinds of people in here representing. Another thing that's been really challenging, to be honest with you, like I've been more, I've been lately sort of infusing a lot of my classes and coursework talking about like health at every size movement and body positivity and fat acceptance. And that's, Somewhere, I think that we're really behind in, and I always get a lot of pushback when I teach that in my classes. It's like I compare it to people who've never heard of white privilege before when I start talking about like that acceptance and and stuff like that. People, are, they students freak out in a while, and I'm just always whoa. It's always one of my most challenging classes, and I'm I am committed to. To always doing that work, and to keep infu- infusing my work and talking about it at, in my classes. That's it. I think it's definitely so needed, and I just am always so shocked with how people don't realize how those body standards and that that phobia is tied into like patriarchy and capitalism and racism and all those things. And so I'm I try to I'm trying to make those connections, but people are we really have a hard time with it. And so I think we have a, a really Long way to go with that. So I'm hoping that you and, you know, we have some awesome other people in our department. I think Meg Panicelli, I think she's great. And so I'm hoping to do some work with her with that too. Like we got to just keep fighting that fight.
0: Where would you say, I'm totally with you. I think I brought it up once in the class and I bring it up just because... Even it's really, for me, what I'll hear in classrooms is like, we would talk about stress, we do like field check-in, and then like suddenly people will start talking about like diet culture, we'll start talking about my body has changed. And then like this like sort of like, you know, virtuousness discourse that comes up, like I'm going to try to be good this week. And this is all typically in like this is all in passing. And so I'm very sensitive to like language of body hatred. And I'm like, wait, wait, we need to really deconstruct yeah. this really quickly.
1: Another day I was in class yeah. and um, I had a student, we were doing like a sanctuary check-in and she's like, "No, know, my name is whatever. I'm feeling whatever. And my goal is to not eat when I go home. And I said, Um, hold on, if you're hungry, you should eat. And that's all I'm going to say about that. And everybody laughed and I kind of like, but I'm serious though, you know what I mean? And like, it's like, I don't know. It's so pervasive. I think that's, it's, you know, particularly one of the ways that women in particular bond about sort of like good and bad food and diet types of things and preparing for vacation, you know, things like that. And so I've really had to work hard personally and professionally to try to like break that down. And it's, a, it's hard. It's hard. And I think, you know, I have to be sensitive. We're all in our own journey with it, but I, I do definitely want the students to start thinking about how we're, what we're saying and doing, even if you can't accept it for yourself right now, but still recognizing that what you say and do affect can affect your clients. Right. And so you need to be sensitive for that reason first, certainly for yourself too, but you got to start somewhere, I guess.
0: I think of it as like, if we are in Like a setting where we're teaching practice, right? Like true liberation practice, like true practice that reflects the values of social work and also like values of anti black racism and like, you know, anti ape, like, you know, like free from ableism, free from all of these things. If we're consistently policing our bodies, we're probably going to be policing other people in very different ways and it's like a decolonization process. Right. What would you say is like the resistance that people have, especially in social work? I mean, social work education, as many folks know, it's very personal, right? It's like use of self, self-reflection, all this stuff. What would you say are some of the resistance points for folks when it comes to these lectures that you have around body acceptance, fat phobia, health at every size?
1: I think, and I think this is a good sort of discussion to have too, but social work folks, folks like to tie it to wellness and, and self-care. And it's always sort of like, what, am I, what can I do to be well? And they always equate wellness and self-care with, not always, but like often equate wellness and self-care with like taking care of your body and taking care of your body with exercise and eating well. But also with that often comes shrinking your body too, right? So like, it's like those things are never separated. So I'm like, great. If you want to move your body to make your body feel good, that's terrific. If you're moving your body, you know, and like, you know, like there's like the quote, like, you know, move your body because you love it, not because you hate it. Right. And so like, but so often I think the, the reason we start to talk about wellness is because we don't like the way we are and people, I don't know. I think that's one of the biggest things and we got to sort of like be careful with those like wellness and self-care things because we put a lot of sort of like personal responsibility on ourselves to be well And I think a lot of the reasons that we're sick is not because of what we do, but it's because of like what the systems are sort of doing to us. And so I think that's part of it, like separating that out and being real clear, like, yeah, well, everyone's sick because we're working 27 jobs and we're tired and there's not enough time and we don't have enough money, right? And we're like trying to raise kids and raise a house, you know, whatever. And we can't afford our mortgage or our rent and housing's too expensive and everything costs too much. Like, yeah, we're exhausted. We're exhausted. There's no amount of bubble baths that's going to fix that. For you, right? There's no amount of walks that's going to fix that for you. So let's talk about, let, let's talk about those things. Let's talk about those larger systems and sort of what we can do to fix that. But let's also talk about like, what do we really mean when we talk about wellness and self-care? It's great to eat and do things to make your body feel good. It's great to move your body so that it feels good. But let's really be honest with ourselves and talk about if what you're doing, if what you say you're doing for wellness is really to shrink your body. And I think a lot of times it is and people just aren't honest with themselves about that and also just see nothing wrong with it. You know, like I just, it's just take, it's just takes people a really long time to see like, well, I don't have anything against, you know, being in a larger body, but it's not for me. Right. Like I see that kind of thing too. like if it's it's OK for you, if you I don't think there's anything wrong with you. But for me, it's just not comfortable for me. And I don't know that that's true either. Right. Like we got to sort of break that down a little bit more, too. So I don't know. What do you think? I, it's it's been hard.
0: I think it's, it's such a culture class. Right. So yeah. it's like this idea of like we're trying to teach folks. For, so, like the context is important, right, so like we're it's like it's like learning another language in a school that's primarily speaking English, right, so, like we're in like this context of white supremacy in higher ed, graduate school undergrad, and we're talking about deconstructing healthism, which when we think about healthism, implicit in it are things like purity, yes. virtuousness, being right, restriction and sacrifice, rigidity. And yeah. so much of those are like fueled by white supremacy. But we're in this context. So it's like, I'm trying to learn this language, but everyone's talking like I'm consumed by English. Yeah. I'm in this culture of English. And I notice a lot of students- it's
1: like a fish in water doesn't know it's wet.
0: Exactly, exactly. And I think it's so much of it is students are often like trying to get it right. like So they're in this sort of restrictive mindset of like getting it right, anxiety, restriction around time. And so there's such an appeal, I think, and an attachment to you know healthism in different ways, I think some of the field placement students are in have a really problematic understanding of health and like how the sick body is demonized, illness is demonized, disparity is demonized, and we're unable to sort of access that self compassion so there's this like interesting i in my my vision of what I've seen with certain folks is there is this sort of the culture really aligns well with you know, healthism because it, it responds to the anxiety, it responds to the culture that folks are in. It's kind of like pizza and beer, you know. It goes well together because, like, people are in a place of restriction. So restriction, I, I, I think of, like, the terms of, like, restriction. I think of, like, this idea, and I mean, like, this is, like, something that, like, really, like, gets me excited. It's, like, part of fat phobia. you know, we talk about, like, the early 1900s, and we talk about virtuous like, discourse and how, like, white bodies, particularly, like, white Anglo bodies, were seen as, like, There was, like, a class issue around, like, this is sort of how we maintain class. as We demonize, like, the sort of more Eastern European bodies that were coming in. But then there are also, like, it's juxtaposed a lot of racist discourse, looking at the Mm -hmm. unruly nature of, like, the Black body and Mm -hmm. how it doesn't conform to this, like, sort of thin ideal. And when I heard that word, I was hearing this in a podcast. Shout-outs to Food Psych. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But, you know, this idea of unruly right? And I think of unruly positions with this word professionalism. And then I'm like, oh, what does this mean? And then I'm like, oh, of course, it makes sense to like, want to yeah. be on a diet. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't know. That's sort of some of my thoughts about
1: it. Yeah, that's a great way to think about it. I agree. I agree. It's, it's really been hard. But I, you know, Pierre, shout out to Pierre Cicero and Alex Neff. A couple, I guess, last year we did the radical social justice course. We got to get you to come guest lecture for that the next time we do it too. But we did a unit on fatphobia in there, and so we did like a whole day on it. It was great. We had a really, you know, I was a little worried, and I, you know, we laughed at the title like radical social justice because we were like, none of these things are radical. Like this is all <laughs> doing, you know what I mean? Like talking about capitalism and how it messes everybody up, talking about fat phobia, talking about different kinds of families, talking about, you know, advocating for LGBTQ issues or whatever. So it's not, I don't really think it's radical, those, the class, but anyway, we got a really great group of students and I was a little nervous that we would have to like sort of convince people of like what we were talking about, but we didn't. And so it was a really like open and like people who were like right there ready to like you know march on and fight on so it was cool so that was one and I will say that that class I think that was one of the most like important and defining career moments for me like it just really helped open my eyes to like all the possibilities and all of like what I think social work should be moving to. So on that note, social work education, you're like at the
0: core of it. You're part of the sort of change makers. What needs to change in social work education, particularly graduate social work education, but also undergraduate social work education? What needs to change?
1: You know, I think I still find find us really sort of caught up in this like cultural competence bubble. And I really am ready to just bust that bubble wide open. We need to, you know, some, Sometimes I teach class and students have never heard of the term like anti-racism, and so I think like why not? That's where we need to be, right? Like we're past cultural humility, we're past like you know, you know, multicultural. Like we really need to be working to be having like anti-racist and anti-oppressive practice, and so that's where I'm at right now. I still don't feel like there's a lot of movement in that in the circles that I'm familiar with, right? Like my context is Westchester. And so I, you know, it could be different as some, in some other graduate programs that are maybe, and we, you know, even we say we're social justice focused and like human rights focused, but I really feel like there needs to be sort of like threads of that throughout throughout our curriculum. And I feel like from the, some of the professors that I've, that I've talked to, we have to sort of put that those pieces in, our, in ourselves. And so I'd really like to see us not have to do that, but just sort of have an understanding, like, we need to have an anti-oppressive social work practice and that's our orientation to teaching everything. So that's really what I think is the, is one of the biggest things. Another thing I'm really excited about is this sort of like simulation-based teaching that we're starting to do. I think that's really innovative and I think that's where a lot of social work education is moving I I talk to students all the time, like, you know, we beat APA into their heads for two or three years and then they go into the field and never use APA again unless they end up going to a, you know, a doctoral program or something. And, you know, nothing wrong with APA. I think it's something that you, you need to know, you need to learn. But what, really will help them is to practice these skills that, that we're teaching and that we're talking about every day. Like, I don't want you to write me a paper about how well you know about CBT, but let's see you do it. Let's see you put some of these skills into practice. Let me see what you're going to say to a mom who's just, you know, experienced some community trauma because that's who's going to be walking into your office. And so I, re- you know, students freak out about it because they get nervous about doing role plays and doing these simulations and stuff in front of people and and they're recorded. But I think that's a great way to give feedback. Like, I think that's how you learn is, is by doing. So I'm really excited about that. And I think that's where a lot of social work education is moving. In Westchester is, is doing a lot of great work around, you know, creating these simulation opportunities. So that's exciting. When you
0: think about your own practice, your own journey in social work, a lot of things that we talk about in this podcast is this idea of the use of self. What parts of yourself, parts of your journey have informed who you are today and the type of social work that you're practicing today?
1: Wow, that's a good question. I, I remember my, I had an undergrad professor at UMBC, Dr. James Bembry is one of my favorites. And he would always say, oh, you know, people would always ask me like, oh, you're a social worker, you're a social worker, you know, how do you not take your work home with you? And he would say, I'm a social worker. I take the human condition home with me. Right And so that has always stuck with me for the past 20 years. Like I take the human condition home with me, and also, I don't separate myself from me and them, right? Like it's like there before the grace of God go, I, I could end up in anybody's practice in anybody's chair on any day. You just never know. And so that's how I approach my practice that it could be me in any one of these seats at any moment or someone I love. And so I think that, and I've, and I've seen people that don't have that orientation and I think it's a little bit different, right? I've heard people say like, yeah, you know, glad, you know, my shift is over. I get to leave my clients in the hood. I've heard social workers say this. I get to leave my social workers in the hood and go home, you know, like, no, this is all our hood, right? Like what's good, what every hood we're helping, we're helping ourselves too. And it's just so, I guess, hurtful to me to see people who don't look at who we're treating collectively as part of our world community, right? Like, because that's what we're really trying to do is make all the communities better. And that's just how I look at it. I like, you know, I show up as who I am as a person who could be asking for the same service one day. And so I'm going to provide the best, best service that I can. I love
0: that you mentioned that because I find, I remember in graduate school, like there's, and this is like a whole like, I think we can create a whole episode on this. Mm-hmm. This idea of, like, so I was introduced to, like, this idea of boundaries, right, in graduate school. Yeah. Not that I didn't have any access to that before, right. but I mean, those boundaries were a bit problematic earlier in my life. But right. still, like, there's this language of boundaries, like, yeah. I think, like, the Reamer text, like, a lot of these texts yeah. talk about, like, the way in which... Social work education and boundaries are introduced is really, in my opinion, through a white gaze, right? Yeah. So it's like this this way of seeing the other as separate and one that, like, the boundaries Absolutely. need to be respected. And I was, I was often, like, I often t- had, like, a real challenge with that. And not that, like, because I was willing to, like, break boundaries in this way, but rather... I remember my first year field placement. I was very explicit. I wanted to work with LGBTQ youth. This is like a part of my identity. This is something that I've done historically. And I was paired with this amazing social work African American male here in Philadelphia, Jay Grant. Shout out to Jay Grant, social work first year field placement. Awesome person. And I remember asking him, "I'm like, you know, Jay, I'm really struggling because one, some of the participants here are like maybe four years younger than me, like not far in age. Likely are going to see me at a bar or a club or some sort of queer social space that I have the right to access and so do they like you know this is just the world that we live in and yet there's this discourse in graduate school where I'm really supposed to be hyper vigilant Mm -hmm. about being seen and I remember his response was so awesome he was like I want people to see me in those spaces Mm -hmm. I want people to like know that people like me exist in these spaces
1: because
0: that's important and I was like yes that is important you know and it and it is that cited in the text no No, you know what I mean they talk about like what is it co-occurring boundary or boundary crossing versus boundary violation and I'm like even the word cross to me feels like it doesn't feel good you know what I mean and so I I love that you mention that because it really is about our you know it's hard to disavow these parts of ourselves for the sake of what professionalism or this professional identity that was never formulated for people who have these intersecting identities and so i find like this this needs to change this language because there's other folks that are accessing the field and then i'll hear it even with some of our students you know students of color students who like occupy these intersectional identities adopt this sort of language of what well that's the work me not the real me and i'm like oh, I feel like it should all be you. (laughs)
1: Right. I talk about this a lot in practice classes too because I think that particularly, you know, we have the benefit, which Philadelphia is a big city, but it's also a small city. But I talk about like we may have a lot, some luxuries around these boundary issues that you're not going to find if you go back, if you go work in a small community, right? So like, you don't want people to know you have children. You don't want, you know, I people say, I don't bring anything personal into my office because I don't want people to know X, Y, and Z about me. I'm like, okay. I said, so what happens if you move to, you know, Center County or a small area where there's one little, you know, complex with the therapist next to the attorney next to the, you know, produce mart. Like people are going to see people pulling into your parking lot, right? Like we are, we have space in Philadelphia. So it might not be that kind of, uh, you know, that smaller community where you might not run into people, but you could end up working and living in a community where you see your clients. And I don't think that that's necessarily a bad thing, right? Like who, who do we think we are that we can be so, removed from everyday people that we talk to. Like that, you know, we need to really think about like what we're saying when we say things like that, you know?
0: Yeah, because there's so many issues around class. There's so many issues around race. Yeah. There's so much unresolved issues of all of those things that I think are implicit in those statements that I don't want to be seen. Because what I hear is I don't want to be seen feels like I don't want to be associated. Yeah. And that feels not very like dignifying. Yeah. <laughs> like dignity and respect of a person, that's a value... And I just, it makes me wonder, it makes me question. And I think, and I think, of course, these are questions that we all need to start asking ourselves because whenever we're accessing graduate school, we're accessing a different class, right? And so like, do we have this class consciousness? Do we have, have we resolved some of these class issues that perhaps maybe we were trying to run away from in accessing this? I don't know, like. I don't know, like, that's a topic that I sometimes want to have with students, but I'm like, oh, time's up and everyone wants to leave at 8.15. Yeah, I
1: know, right? (laughs) I I look at this and I talk about this in terms of, and I think this goes back to some of the agency stuff too, that you were sort of talking about, this idea of, and shout out to TJ Ghost, who's one of my mentors, for sort of like talking to me about this topic, but like, do you want to be an agent of social management or do you want to be a true agent of social change, right? So like, we are taught i think to be agents of social management often even in and grad- social work graduate school make sure the client turns in this paperwork make sure they come appointment yep. if they don't show up they're you know what non <laughs> compliant right? and so and i think a lot of our agencies particularly child welfare where i'm from is really like that um service that are mandated we think that Having a mandate means that clients have no agency and no self-determination. and I have to push back against that all the time. And so, I, you know, when I, when I start to hear those things, I, I say to them, you, you sound like you're being an agent of social management right now. How can we turn this into you being an agent of social change? And, and they stop and think like, all right, you know, and they, they push back. Like, but, 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 and I'm like, no, I don't want to hear it. We're here to change. We're not here to manage people's lives, right? And I, I try to always sort of like have that thread throughout my lectures on yeah. social change
0: it's totally i was when i was working in methadone it was often like people use the state regulations as their code of ethics versus their actual professions right. code of ethics right. and people use those guidelines as like the way to do work when i was like no like we have like Certain insurance company does not own the company. It's like we have to like find, I mean, that's why we have professional code of ethics. This idea of like patients, like whenever I hear agencies talk about like patient-centered and all they want to do is talk about productivity and profits. I'm like, no, this doesn't feel very centered. (laughs) This feels very centered on profits and like a huge manipulation of, of that. And like, yeah, I think absolutely with graduate school, there is sometimes I, some, I I have to really think about like being intentional in terms of the training because some of it feels like we're feeding the machine, right? When we yeah. talk about professionalism and when oh, we yeah. talk about, when we deconstruct, not that I'm saying I want to make this clear. Professionalism, I think, is a problematic term. I want to deconstruct it yeah. because there's parts of it that I think are important, like the values part and like respecting people's time. But then there's parts of it that to me feel like DL, kind of like white supremacy, like oh, yeah. that like, Coded
1: sort of racist mm-hmm. sort of language that we use to like say that you're not you know sort of like acting out of like a white cultural norm or whatever yeah, yeah absolutely i think yeah i think that
0: that's a part of social work education and i'm like mm-hmm. am i feeding the machine like and also how can i prepare people to you know be their authentic self in an institution like i don't know i sometimes i sometimes feel like wow like all these places are like, they have this sort of nonprofit industrial complex way of being. And yet people still have to pay for their student loan debt. I know, I
1: know. <laughs> I, I know. And I always think about like the whole thing with social work licensure and LCSW. And I'm always like, you know, it just affords people so many great opportunities to get licensed. But even in that, there's a lot of sort of like class stuff that you see that plays out in the agencies, you know what I mean? And, I, and, and so it's, it's a struggle. Like, But I think what we're doing the right thing is talking to pe- talking about it. We can't act like it doesn't exist because it does. And, you know, we want people to like be aware of it and look at, you know, how it impacts the work, the work, the work that we're doing. I think that's the best we could do for now is just...
0: Yeah. To name the enactments, right? Because I lo- like the whole licensure bit is like, there are agencies that, man, they will like, well, I'm signing for your papers, so you got to do this or that. Or yeah. like one place, because I'm part of this like student loan forgiveness place, they were like, right before I bounced, they were like, well, aren't you part of HRSA? And I was like, oh, so what does that mean? Like, am I going to be enslaved to you? Like what, does, <laughs> like, what is that? What are we trying to enact here? And not for nothing, I mean, That was definitely what it was, was like, what hook do I have on you to control? And so it just some of these places, like I've heard this thing, other places I've worked, well, I'm only going to work here for two years because they're going to sign off on my licensure. And, you know, what's also really hard is, and this is like, you know, shout out to PSCW. Like I'm part of their like mm-hmm. supervision fee, but I'm booked. Sorry, guys. But, you know, what's really hard is like actually even finding clinicians who are actually working in agencies, right? Because mm-hmm. there's a super right. intense departure where people don't want to work in oh, agencies okay. anymore yeah. because of all the violence and the hazing. And then they work, some folks don't really work in agencies and are providing supervision. Right. So, and not that that's like, you can't get anything valuable from that. But the feedback that I have gotten is it's really hard to sort of empathize with an agency if you haven't worked in one for 20 years. And like the realities of what's happening now is important to empathize with. So it's, I, I think, you know, in having this conversation, I feel like there really is so many unresolved class stuff that our profession is dealing with right now that I think is getting in the way of, one, servicing the next generation of social workers, but two, just creating like a really hard way of relating. It feels really hard to relate.
1: Mm -hmm. I agree. I agree. What
0: would you tell somebody who is interested in pursuing social work as a graduate program, as a profession? What would be your tips or to current graduate students right now who are probably feeling the heat in February of
1: 2020? Yeah, oh, they're struggling. They're struggling. Uh, My advanced practice or specialized practice students. Like I said, I would keep, I think, you know, it's okay to take the human condition home with you because that's what That's what sort of gives us compassion to be an agent of social change and not a social management and sort of think about what's happening for us when we're trying to manage folk and not help change the systems that they're living in. I would say don't stop, right? Like I think people, even though, you know, MSW was talked about as our like terminal degree. Like, let's talk about what, what happens after that. And I think, I don't necessarily think I had a vision for that for myself when I was graduating from grad school, but I want to help people sort of figure that out. Like, what's your next move? What is your next move? Cause there's so much work to do that. I don't want you to just get a cushy job, you know, get a, get a raise at your current agency and think, think that's it because there's a lot of stuff to do. Um, another thing that I really just—I just want people to pay it forward. You know, if there was some somebody that really helped you, somebody that mentored you, somebody that like helped you through grad school, or sort of sort of helped you, you know, in your current position, be that be that person for someone else. Help another student come through. You know, give some advice to somebody who's trying to be the next. You know, be the be in the next generation of social workers. Be a you know field placement resource or field supervisor. You know, be a mentor. I think all those things are really important. That's
0: awesome. all I got for this interview. Oh, this is so wonderful. Janine, thank you, so, Dr. Akbar. Really? Thank you.
1: Oh my gosh, stop now. <laughs>
0: <laughs> thank you so much for being a part of the podcast. Uh, again, how can folks get in contact? Do you have a website? Okay. Yeah, how would folks get in contact so with you if have they have
1: you want to? I have Akbar and Associates net. We're also on Facebook at Akbarn Associates. and We have an Instagram, Akbarn Associates. And also, I'm on Instagram as Dr. Janae Akbar as well. Awesome. And all
0: those ways. Great. Well, I'm gonna definitely make sure folks know where to get you and again. Thank back. you so much for your work.